0: A Texas judge puts a stop to President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. The Department of Justice plans to appeal the decision. It's Friday, November 11th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Chenoy. Coming up, the latest on the results from the midterm election with a focus on a key Senate race in Arizona. Also this hour, as President Biden heads to the climate summit in Egypt,
1: a focus on the future of nuclear energy here in the U.S. Nuclear energy is essential to meeting our climate goals, which are existential. And
0: rediscovering big names from Boston's music history with music producer and record store owner Skippy White. I
2: was there to help them expose their
0: talent, and that was it. In sports, the Bruins win. Becoming cloudy with rain this evening, near 70 today. It's 7.01. Now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Three days after the elections, vote counting continues in Nevada and Arizona, which may determine which party will control the Senate. In Arizona, Bill Gates is chairman of the Board of Supervisors in Maricopa County. He says they had hoped to be finished counting today, but that's not going to happen.
4: And the reason that the gold Post have changed is because wonderful news, the great participation we had on election day. And in particular, we had 290,000 mail in ballots dropped off at our vote centers on election day.
3: In Georgia, the results of that Senate race won't be known until after a runoff election on December 6th. Turnout among young voters was the second highest for a midterm election in the past three decades. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports that's according to early turnout estimates from civic engagement experts at Tufts University.
5: About 27% of eligible voters between the ages of 18 and 29 cast a ballot during the midterm election this year. This is a bit lower turnout than 2018's 31% turnout, which researchers say was the high watermark for voters under 30 in the past several decades. Abby Keisha, who worked on this report, says turnout this year was significantly higher in key battleground states.
6: Outreach, contact,
4: investment in these states is higher so it's not remotely surprising that youth voter turnout
7: is higher
5: researchers found young voters preferred democratic candidates by a 28 point margin which helped the party win some closely contested senate and gubernatorial races ashley lopez npr news
3: tropical depression nicole is bringing heavy rain to the southeast nicole made landfall along florida's east coast as a category one hurricane yesterday morning Joe Mario Pedersen from member station WMFE reports the storm hit some communities in the state that are still
8: recovering from Hurricane Ian just six weeks ago. The deck of chases on the beach, a restaurant in New Smyrna Beach, lies in shambles after Hurricane Nicole passed through Florida's east coast. The sand dune foundation of the Tiki Bar-esque establishment also took a hard hit in September after Hurricane Ian. The owner's husband, Richard Zahn, says Nicole took them by surprise and swallowed their deck, which could seat 100 guests.
7: For the time being, Chase's is unfortunately temporarily shut down, temporarily shut down, while we fix all the damage from the first storm and then, you know, complete the damage now from the second storm.
8: Local officials say at least 11 other structures in the area have been compromised by the two storms and are unsafe for residents to return. For NPR News, I'm Joe Mario Pedersen in Orlando.
3: President Biden is on a foreign trip that will take him to Egypt, Cambodia, and Indonesia. His first stop is the Egyptian resort city of Sharm el-Sheikh to attend the U.N. conference on climate change. This is NPR News from Washington.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. After months of delay, a $3.7 billion state economic development bill finally has Governor Baker's signature. The money will be used for things such as building more housing and helping struggling businesses. WBUR's Yasmeen Ammer reports. At
9: least $350 million will go to human services, mainly to boost wages for those who work with children, the elderly, or people with disabilities. Peter McKinnon is the president of SEIU Local 509, which represents service workers. He says the sector is among the lowest paid.
10: This additional funding goes a long way to show that we prioritize that work, that that work is important, and, and especially for the for the families and individuals who need it. The people taking care of them need to be making good money.
9: The economic package also includes money for financially struggling hospitals and health centers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmeen Ammer.
0: Two construction companies are facing $700,000 in fines for an accident at a South Boston worksite. Three workers were injured when a platform collapsed at the worksite back in May. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration says Suffolk Construction and North Star Contracting failed to prevent the collapse. The agency also says the companies failed to prevent workers from asbestos exposure. After years of discussion, Natick is removing the town's dam on the Charles River. The select board voted to take it down this week. Board members did discuss repairing the dam, but that would be more costly than removing it. Some town officials say this will help fight the effects of climate change. It's unclear when the dam will be fully removed. The city of New Bedford will hold its 104th annual Veterans Day Parade this morning. The first one happened in 1919. Veterans Advisory Board Chairman Robert Bromley says the parade will begin on Union Street at a very symbolic time.
11: I start the parade right at 11 o'clock, and that symbolizes the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, which uh, ended World War I. So right at that time, the whistle gets blown and the parade starts down Union Street.
0: People from about two dozen organizations will take part in the parade, including some older veterans from World War II and the Korean War. It's 7:06.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's *The Nutcracker*. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season, beginning November 25th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9
0: in Natick. The Bruins beat the Calgary Flames 3-1 to one last night at the Garden. The Bees will visit the Buffalo Sabers tomorrow. Tonight, the Celtics will host the Denver Nuggets. In your forecast, it's going to be mostly cloudy today with a high near 70. There's a chance of showers this evening. Rain, storms, and strong winds move in overnight. Temperatures will stay in the 60s. Rain tomorrow morning with strong wind gusts, especially on the Cape and Islands. Sun by the afternoon. The high tomorrow will be in the lower 70s. Sunny on Sunday and in the 50s. It's 56 degrees in Boston at 7.07.
12: WBUR supporters include PBS with Taken Hostage. American Experience tells the story of the Iran hostage crisis through eyewitness accounts. A two-night event beginning Monday at 9, 8 central on PBS. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. There is
13: so much attention on Arizona right now. Election officials there are methodically counting votes while they fight off criticism about how long it is taking. It's one of three states with undecided Senate races, the outcomes of which will determine which party controls the chamber in the next Congress. There are other close races in Arizona, too. Some House seats, a governor's race that has gotten national attention, and a few other statewide offices, including Secretary of State, which will oversee the next election election. NPR politics reporter Jimena Bastillo is in Phoenix and joins us now. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Just give us the latest, Jimena.
14: Sure. Maricopa County, the county with the largest share of voters that also encompasses Phoenix closed out on Thursday with more than 300,000 ballots left to count here's what happened a lot of people voted Mm -hmm. and a lot of people did so by taking the ballot mailed to them and dropping it off at a polling location on election day instead of mailing it in or dropping it off earlier those are many of the ballots left to be counted and when I say a lot I mean a lot 290,000 in fact Mm -hmm. and this is a historic number of those election day drop-offs. 100,000 more ballots than Election Day 2020, which held the previous record. Now those ballots go through a multi-step process until they can be counted. And that all just takes time.
13: Right. But that opens the door to conspiracy theories, right?
14: Mm hmm. Well, election officials have been working even since before Election Day to ward off concerns of election tampering or fraud. Election deniers performed well in the GOP primary and the top statewide candidates for Senate governor and secretary of state. All echo false claims of election fraud in 2020. Because it's a, been a major theme of the election this time around, it's no surprise that some candidates, like Republican gubernatorial candidate Kerry Lake, have accused officials of delaying and stalling the results right now. Bill Gates, the top Maricopa County election official, told reporters that the long wait for final tallies is not new, and he is tired of the criticism.
4: And quite frankly, it is offensive for Kerry Lake to say that these people behind me are slow rolling this when they're working 14 to 18 hours. So I really hope this is the end of that now. We can be patient and respect the results when they come out.
14: And it is true that counting ballots, which is different than calling an election, usually bleeds into the week after election day. Even then, in 2018, the Associated Press called the race for Senator Kirsten Sinema nearly a week later. Hmm. So um, given that all this is going as it normally should go, uh, what can we expect over the next few days? We can expect to keep waiting. County officials have not given an estimate for when all the ballots will be done. They are releasing one batch of ballot counts each evening, so that is why you may be seeing updates come slowly. Plus, even though Maricopa is the biggest county, Pima County, where Tucson is, also has more than 100,000 outstanding ballots. Election officials are urging everyone to be patient. So far, there haven't been any signs of unrest, as some had feared. Still, though, election workers are taking some heat. Here's Gates again talking about threats they've faced.
4: And that threat level is continuing, and that is now a part of life for me and my colleagues. And it shouldn't be, and it shouldn't be for all the elections workers and election officials across the country, but that's now a way of life.
14: As for why this is taking this long... Look, officials made a point to name other states that are still tabulating results, and there are several outstanding House races anyways. NPR's Jimena Bastillo,
13: thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Former President Donald Trump says he'll probably run for president again. An announcement could come next week. President Biden says he intends to run for re-election. Nothing is formal yet, though. Polls suggest many Americans are not solidly on board with those plans. White House correspondent Tamara Keith shares what NPR learned when talking with voters during the midterm campaign.
5: It might feel too soon for this conversation, but it isn't really. The shadow race for 2024 is already well underway and voters are thinking about it, or at least they have plenty of thoughts when asked. President Biden, who turns 80 later this month, is already America's oldest president. And that was weighing on people as we asked them whether he should run again. Now that I'm still on the fence about. Javette McKenzie is a Democratic voter from North Carolina.
3: Not just because of his performance, but I do think at a certain point, age-wise, you just need to relax, relate, release.
6: And I don't think anything is worth your health and your mental stress and your time with your family.
5: At some point, she said, everybody just needs to hand off the baton. It's a common sentiment, but Democratic and Democratic-leaning voters we spoke to were also quick to defend Biden, like Kathy Abrascato. He stands for a lot of things I stand
15: for, so I think he, you know, he's doing the best he could with what he's got.
5: There was a long pause, though, when I asked her whether Biden should run again. I don't know
9: about that. Um, I think that if we had somebody a little younger, it might be a little bit better. But
15: if
12: he is our choice, I will support him. I mean, he represents what we we want in this country.
5: At his press conference Wednesday, Biden was asked about midterm exit polling that found two-thirds of voters don't want him to run. His message to those with reservations? Watch me. In 2020, Biden wasn't most Democrats' first choice. But in the end, he consolidated support behind the idea that he could beat then-President Trump. And he did. And now in conversations with voters like Jeff Flater, Trump is a big part of the calculus.
11: Joe's a, I think he's a good person, but I think uh, in a a nice way, I think he's getting a little old and I think he's, but again, if he's the guy running, I'm going to support him over Trump any day of the week, twice on Sundays.
5: Many voters we spoke to didn't know who would run for the Democrats in the absence of Biden. A president has a tendency to block the sun. That's exactly what former President Trump is aiming to do. At a rally this week, with ominous music behind him, he teased another
2: run. I'm going to be making a very big announcement on Tuesday, November 15th, at Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida.
5: Polls indicate a narrow majority of Republicans want Trump to run again. But interviews with voters reveal ambivalence.
16: I voted for President Trump, but I would not vote for him again.
5: Scott Pinson lives in Alpharetta, Georgia.
16: I don't like the documents they found in Mar-a-Lago. There's, there's a lot of things. I didn't like what happened on January 6th. Um, there's a lot of things that, uh, that, that have really bothered me about him.
5: Tony Vansquake and his wife, Michelle, supported Trump before.
17: He was a non-politician and we needed non-politicians. Mm-hmm. Yep. He's just far too polarizing, I think, to... Uh, if we can get someone like DeSantis or something out of Florida to run, I think he would make a big difference.
5: What he means by polarizing is that Trump divided Republicans and energized Democrats. And Van's quake is adamant the country needs a Republican in the White House again.
17: Trump proved that he could not gather the votes the second time around.
5: Diane Koops likes Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. As for Trump... Oh, I think he has so much baggage. I just think it's time to go, and I love him, but I think he should just go and retire at Mar-a-Lago and be happy and, and just be retired. Retirement may not be in the plans for either Trump or Biden. In the next few weeks, Americans will get a better sense of whether they will be seeking a rematch. Tamara Keith, NPR News.
13: Native American veterans will be in Washington, D.C. this afternoon for the dedication of a memorial honoring their service. It's at the National Museum of the American Indian, and this memorial was years in the making. NPR's Quill Lawrence talked with the Vietnam veteran who designed it.
18: Harvey Philip Pratt is an artist from Oklahoma, a Vietnam veteran, and a member of the Cheyenne and Arapaho nations. He wanted to design a memorial that would appeal to the nearly 600 federally recognized American Indian tribes and Alaska Native villages, as well as Native Hawaiians.
11: I can reach these tribes through of circles and pathways and uh, cardinal points and sacred colors and uh, a song. War songs play over speakers
18: incorporated into the design in a tranquil grove next to the museum on the National Mall. It's a circular granite bench around a pool of water in an intricately carved stone drum. In the middle of the pool, a giant steel circle rests on its edge. And then
11: a fire in the big steel circle, which is a hole in the sky where the Creator lives, and we have the earth and the air. And I thought, those are things that we all use, sacred fires,
18: sacred water. Elements used by many tribes in ceremonies, including, Pratt says, age-old healing of what's now called PTSD from war. A tall steel lance stands at each of the cardinal directions with rings so visitors can tie on prayer
11: cloths. Not all tribes use those, but many, a lot of them do. Uh, prayer cloth is, uh, you can say a prayer into that cloth for your veterans or for the family or for someone who's passed, and when the wind blows, that prayer goes out every time it shakes that, that uh, prayer cloth.
1: Unfortunately, in American society, you know, American Indians are pretty invisible. Cynthia
18: Chavez-Lamar directs the National Museum of the American Indian. She's a member of the San Felipe Pueblo and the first Native woman to head a Smithsonian museum.
1: The memorial is one way to to represent, to, to make us visible. To remind
18: the public, she says that American Indians have served in huge numbers going back to the Revolutionary
1: War, despite a painful history. We've lost lands. We've been disenfranchised in different ways. But at the end of the day, um, you know, we're going to fight for this country. And I'm just, you know, thankful that the museum is able to do a little part to honor that
18: service. Harvey Pratt says the memorial celebrates warriors who defended their land
11: and their people. Their blood is spilt all over this land. And we have spilt Native American blood all over this earth defending this land. and And that we will
18: continue to defend it. Thousands of Native veterans are expected to attend the dedication of the memorial later today on the National Mall. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. This
13: is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoi. Coming up, President Biden visits Cambodia this weekend to meet with East and Southeast Asian leaders. Notably, Myanmar's military rulers who took power in a 2021 coup are not invited. It's 719.
19: Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars.
20: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events. Design and production of corporate and non-profit events, weddings and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. Are cultural
21: and economic forces changing boyhood, manhood, and even fatherhood? Richard Reeves
22: says... Many men and many boys are really struggling in school, in the workplace, in the family. And unless we pay serious attention to the problems of boys and men, they're just going to fester.
21: That's why he says true gender equality means helping men too. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Mostly cloudy today with a high near 71. There's a chance of showers in the late afternoon. Tonight, the showers may continue and we may see thunderstorms and with some strong wind gusts. Temperatures will fall to a low of 63. Tomorrow, a rainy Saturday morning, then clouds gradually clear for a mostly sunny day with a high near 72. Sunday, rain in the early morning, then mostly sunny, but much cooler with a high near 55. It's 57 degrees in Boston. Tomorrow at WBUR City Space, join Circle Round podcast host Rebecca Shear for a party to celebrate the launch of her new children's book. Get tickets for the whole family at WBUR.org events. It's 721.
1: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com, and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day more at metamucil.com and from workday committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights stay decision ready and prepare for whatever's next the finance hr and planning system for a changing world it's
13: morning edition from npr news i'm rachel martin president biden arrives in cambodia this weekend for summits with east and southeast asian leaders Myanmar is on the agenda, but its leaders are not invited because of a coup last year that led to civil war. Michael Sullivan reports from Bangkok.
6: Since the coup, the resistance to military rule has become more fierce by the day, and the military's atrocities more pronounced. Like September's attack on a school in Sagang, a hotbed of resistance where the military claimed resistance fighters were hiding. The soldiers attacked with helicopters, then from the ground, says this teacher who was there. She watched one young student, wounded so badly, he pleaded for relief. Please kill me, he begged, I cannot stand it anymore. He was one of 11 children killed in what a UN official called a war crime. Then, late last month, at least 80 people were killed, when a Myanmar military airstrike targeted this concert in Kachin state. It was the deadliest single attack since the coup. The military claimed it was hitting a legitimate target, calling reports of civilian deaths fake news. Saw Kapi is an educator and former resistance fighter who fled Myanmar after the coup. We are
7: being slaughtered, or people are being slaughtered on the ground, especially in Zagain and Magui. But, you know, aside from proverbial support, we didn't see and hear a lot from our Western friends.
6: Even as the military ramps up its attacks against those who oppose it, especially in the so-called dry zone in the north, where that resistance has been especially fierce. Richard Horsey is senior Myanmar analyst for the International Crisis Group. They've been burning down hundreds of villages, thousands and thousands of homes, displacing a huge proportion of the population in that area in an attempt to make it just impossible for people to resist. So far, they haven't succeeded. And more than 20 months after the coup, Horsey says, Myanmar's people are slipping further into misery. State services continue to be in a perilous shape. The health and education systems have almost collapsed. And there are millions of internally displaced people now as well across the country. Meanwhile, Myanmar's senior general, Min Ong Lung has made repeated trips to Russia procuring weapons, arms, planes and attack helicopters, while voicing his public support for President Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. Sakapi, so, The two bad guys are coming
7: together, supporting each other. But on our part, we don't see any material supports from the so-called democratic countries.
6: Several rounds of targeted sanctions against the military haven't been enough, argues activist Tinzar Yi. She says the West needs to take a bigger bite collectively by going after the state-run Myanmar oil and gas enterprise, a lucrative source of cash for the regime. The EU has already taken such a step. The U.S. and the U.K. have not. It
23: provides around half of the hot currency that the military is now using to pay for the bullets and troops that is is ten against its own innocent civilian. So Sanchez would save life by cutting off that critical revenue stream.
6: But if that revenue stream keeps flowing, she warns, so will her people's blood. Either way, Richard Horsey expects the conflict to drag on for years. The military continues to dig in, continues to be determined to hang on to power. And most of the population vehemently disagrees with that. And that struggle is going to go on for a long time to come. Michael Sullivan, NPR News, Bangkok.
13: There are these islands situated between Norway and the North Pole where everybody wears headlamps. And they do it for two and a half months out of the year. This weekend, the pitch black darkness begins. Here's NPR's Claire Murashima.
24: In addition to the headlamps, Svalbard's 2,500 inhabitants travel in pairs outside their village. They carry flare guns to ward off polar bears.
25: This darkness is complete. So you have to sort of live with that and you have to see the beauty in that.
24: Hilda Fallenström is an Arctic explorer and citizen scientist. She quit her job in tourism and now lives months at a time in trappers' cabins at the edge of the North Pole collecting climate data.
25: I moved to Svalbard back in 1995 and back then we had all the fjords were frozen during winter for a much longer time than, than now.
24: And it's not just the extreme darkness. People of Svalbard are dealing with a landscape that's warming seven times faster than the rest of the globe. Folundström and fellow explorer Sonja Sorby started Hearts in the Ice, a group conducting research in the polar regions and educating the next generation. Despite the darkness, Folundström sticks to her daily regimen. She savors the calm of the polar night. Researcher Carrie Leibowitz was intrigued by how Norwegians living so far north had found a way to stay positive. She won herself a Fulbright and headed to the University of Tromsø. The
14: northernmost university in the world.
24: She had to cast aside her American assumptions about winter.
14: When I was putting together this research study, I thought how interesting that they have relatively low rates of seasonal depression, even though Tromsø has such a long, dark, extreme winter. But when I talked to people in Norway about
24: it, they really liked the polar night. The student center at Tromsø has an unusual feature. A light cafe where you can go and get coffee and sit in front of the sun lamps, especially to help wake up in the morning. People don't usually end up in Svalbard by accident. They choose to live there for work, the northern lights, snow sports, and the cozy indoor activities. There's a word for it in Norwegian, kushla. Here's how Fallenström describes it.
25: The tempo goes down an inch and uh, You have the option to light your candles inside and read a book. Maybe you have a
14: wood-burning stove.
24: Leibowitz's research found that the farther north you go, the more that people enjoy winter.
14: People who had a positive winter mindset were also more likely to have high life satisfaction, experience more positive emotions, be psychologically flourishing, and sort of uh, pursue the kinds of challenges that lead to personal growth. Fallenström agrees.
25: I think um, the fact that if you look at the darkness as a limiting thing, well, then you get limited by it. But uh, if you see it as an opportunity to experience something else, um, it's to me, it's easy to find the beauty in, in the darkness.
24: Because without the fjords, frigid temperatures, and months of darkness, there would be no kushla. And given the rate of warming, we might not have kushla for much longer. Claire Marishima, NPR News. This is
0: NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, Russia says it's completed its withdrawal from the Ukrainian city of Kherson, And a judge halts President Biden's student loan relief program. The White House says it will appeal. It's 729.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com.
10: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The results of many congressional races are still unknown as vote counts continue in a number of states. Senate contests in Arizona and Nevada are undecided. In Arizona's largest county, Maricopa, NPR's Jimena Bustillo says about 300,000 ballots have yet to be counted.
14: A lot of people voted, and a lot of people did so by taking the ballot mailed to them and dropping it off at a polling location on Election Day instead of mailing it in or dropping it off earlier. Those are many of the ballots left to be counted.
10: It's possible the control of Congress come January could be decided by Georgia's Senate runoff on December 6th. A federal judge in Texas says President Biden's student loan debt cancellation program is unlawful. The president is seeking to wipe out up to $20,000 in student debt for millions of Americans. U.S. District Judge Mark Pittman says the plan is unconstitutional without congressional authority. President Biden will be addressing the U.N. climate summit in Egypt today. He's expected to promote efforts by the U.S. to fight global warming. They include billions of dollars for green technology. More than a half dozen states from Florida to New York are seeing heavy rains from Nicole this morning. It's now a tropical depression. This is NPR News from Washington. A report from the UN's nuclear watchdog says Iran has likely boosted its stockpile of highly enriched uranium. The International Atomic Energy Agency is critical of Tehran for continuing to prevent inspectors from accessing or monitoring Iran's nuclear sites. Ukraine's president says his country's forces have retaken dozens of villages in areas recently abandoned by Russian troops. NPR's Greg Myrie is in Kyiv.
11: In
26: his nightly television address, President Volodymyr Zelensky said Ukraine's army has recently liberated 41 villages in the southern part of the country. Videos on social media show elderly residents who spent months under Russian occupation hugging and kissing the newly arrived Ukrainian soldiers. Some villages are less than 20 miles from Kherson, where Russia says it's withdrawing thousands of troops from the city. Russia's defense ministry says the pullout is proceeding as planned. However, President Zelensky says Ukraine's forces are proceeding with caution, wary of any possible traps set by the Russians. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kiev. A strong
10: earthquake struck the South Pacific today off Tonga. It prompted a tsunami advisory. The U.S. Geological Survey says that quake had a magnitude of 7.3. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington.
0: From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Schnoy. The city of Watertown must pay a former police detective more than $4 million. Yesterday, a jury ruled in favor of Kathleen Donahue in her suit against the Watertown Police Department and Police Union. Donahue claimed she faced a sexist work environment and was targeted after speaking up about dangerous conduct by other officers during the 2013 search for the Boston Marathon bombing suspects. Attorney Ellen Zucker represented Donahue and says she hopes this verdict sends a message to all police departments in the
24: Commonwealth.
3: Police departments are charged with enforcing the law equally. And that means that they have to treat the men and women within their force with equal dignity. That doesn't happen in a lot of police forces, and it's time that it does.
0: The city has not yet responded to a request for comment. Boston City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo is being reinstated as head of the Government Operations Committee. He was removed from the leadership position earlier this year when sexual assault allegations against him surfaced. Arroyo denies the decades-old allegations. The Boston Globe reports Arroyo is still waiting to be given back his positions as head of the redistricting committee and council vice president arts space in Dorchester has been saved. An artist collective will pay a developer $2.8 million to acquire the studio space it's been renting. WBUR's Amelia Mason reports more than half of that money came from the city. The 50 or so artists who rent workspace at Humphrey
21: Street Studios were able to purchase the building with help from a mission-driven developer who plans to build housing on the property's empty back lot. Humphrey Street artist Christina Tedesco says the deal offers hope to other Boston artists at risk of displacement.
1: I think it's a win for artists everywhere. Something very creative happened to save this building, and I think we are going to have to continue to be creative and create policy to do so. The studios will be managed by a nonprofit
21: controlled by the artists. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia
0: Mason. It's 7.35.
27: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by H and H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah chorus, November twenty-fifth through twenty-seventh at Symphony Hall. HandelandHaydn.org.
0: Charlie McAvoy scored in his season debut for the Bruins last night. They beat the Calgary Flames three to one at the Garden. The bees will visit the Buffalo Sabers tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics will play the Denver Nuggets. It'll be overcast today with temperatures around seventy. There's a chance of rain and thunderstorms that may bring high winds this evening. It'll fall to the low 60s. The high winds continue tomorrow morning, especially on the Cape and Islands. There's also a chance of rain, but skies should clear by the afternoon, and it'll be mostly sunny in the low 70s. Temperatures drop sharply on Sunday. It'll be sunny, but in the 50s. It's 57 degrees in Boston at 736.
1: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore, viking.com. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. Russia
13: now says all of its troops have withdrawn from the southern city of Kherson in Ukraine. This marks a major setback for Russia's war effort. For the latest, we are joined now by NPR's Greg Myrie, who is in Kiev. Good morning, Greg.
26: Hi, Rachel. This is a massive win for Ukrainian forces. What can you tell us? right russia's defense ministry put out a statement this morning saying all their troops had pulled out of herson it's a large city on the west bank of the dnipro river and the russian troops have retreated to the east bank and this comes less than 48 hours after russia announced that it would do this now video on social media shows several spans of the main bridge crossing the river are completely destroyed ukraine had damaged the bridge but it appears the russians took down entire spans as they were leaving And you may recall Russia annexed Kherson and other regions back in September saying this was Russian territory forever. So the Kremlin today is still claiming this is Russian territory, though apparently there are no Russians there. So,
13: Greg, I mean, Russia was occupying this, but was there actual fighting going on between Ukrainian forces and Russian forces
26: no, no. Um, there, there really hadn't been in the in the in the city. Um, the the Ukrainians had uh, started with a uh, 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 an offensive that moved toward Kherson uh, back in the in the early of the, of the fall. They got closer and closer, uh, but it it was clear that uh, this offensive was was going to succeed. Hmm. Now, what happened was the Ukrainians were able to to fire uh, long range uh, U.S. weapons. These high Mars and hit Russian positions damage the bridges that the Russians were using to resupply and this has made had made the Russians much more vulnerable uh, and and they decided to to pull out rather than uh, stay and fight and risk being trapped so what's
13: the situation on the ground there Russians are gone have Ukrainian troops moved in
26: Uh, It doesn't seem so. Officially, the Ukrainians are still being very cautious, although unofficially we're seeing signs of jubilation. Uh, President Zelensky said the, the Ukrainian army had taken more than 40 villages in the Kherson region recently. Uh, some of these were just 10 or 20 miles outside of Kherson. But the Ukrainian officials haven't commented on the exact status or conditions inside the city. They're, they've been very, very wary of a Russian trap. But on Ukrainian social media, we just see it exploding with videos of the, of the Ukrainian soldiers entering these outlying villages. Uh, elderly residents who, who were under Russian occupation for months, they're greeting the soldiers with hugs and kisses and tears. One video shows a young woman playing a violin in the street to greet them. Mm-hmm. We've even seen a picture of a Ukrainian flag raised at the main government building in Kherson. Uh, we don't know who did this. Probably the best guess at this stage is a Ukrainian civilian who had stayed in the city.
13: So can you explain in the, in the broader context of the war just how significant Kherson is?
26: Well, this was one of Russia's few real successes. Russia took the city in the very first days of the war in February without a fight. The city was not damaged, so Russia began running the city uh, using Russian currency, a Russian phone system, and TV channels. And this is what Russia had hoped to do throughout the country. They also wanted to push further along Ukraine's southern coast, take over all those cities, and cut Ukraine off from the Black Sea, which is very critical. But now Russia has left without A fight. It's really Russia's third major retreat from the outskirts of Kyiv, the capital, the second largest city, Kharkiv, and now Kherson.
13: Hmm. And here's Greg Myrie reporting from Kyiv on the news that Russian forces have left the city of Kherson. Thank you. My pleasure. President Biden's plan to cancel some or all federal debt for students, for 40 million borrowers, actually. This plan ran into a wall late yesterday. Two disgruntled borrowers filed a lawsuit challenging Biden's plan. And a U.S. District Court judge in Texas has now declared that the debt relief program is unlawful and vacated it. For more on what happens next, we've got NPR's Cory Turner with us. Hey, Cory. Hey, Rachel. Uh, So this is sort of a big deal. Um, Before we get to the implications, can you walk us through the basics of this case?
28: Yeah. So as you said, it was brought by two borrowers, making a pretty unusual argument. One won't qualify for any relief. The other does qualify for $10,000, but is actually frustrated because he believes he should qualify for more. The remedy they're seeking though is not cancellation of their debts, but to stop the government from canceling anyone's debts and to essentially start all over again and rewrite the rules of the program. Hmm. So I spoke last night with Persis Yu. Uh, She's managing counsel at the Student Borrower Protection Center, which is advocated for debt relief. And here's how she describes this case.
3: I like to think about this lawsuit as like the toddler problem. If I can't have it, you can't have it either. And that's not how the law works, and it's not how the courts should apply the law.
28: But here's the thing, Rachel. This case is not just about these two borrowers. It is also a big picture fight over capital G government Mm -hmm. and the separation of powers. The conservative legal group behind this suit argues President Biden cannot just wipe away $400 billion in student loan debt. Only Congress can do that. And for him to do it without Congress, they argue, is unlawful, though, of course, the Biden administration says lawmakers did give it the authority to erase student debt when they passed a law called the HEROES Act.
13: Okay. so what did this judge say?
28: So Judge Mark T. Pittman, who was appointed by former President Trump, doesn't buy the administration's reading of the HEROES Act. Instead, he wrote that Biden's debt relief program is a complete usurpation of congressional authority by the executive branch. The judge even quoted James Madison in the Federalist Papers, uh, writing, the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary in the same hands, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. What's most interesting about Pittman's ruling, though, is that he condensed a lot of legal process here, including whether to issue some sort of temporary block on debt relief. And instead, he went big and vacated the entire program. So
13: what does that mean for all the people, all the borrowers who've already started their online documents to get their debt relieved?
28: Well, at the very least, it means they're still waiting. This is a big setback, Rachel, for those borrowers and for the Biden administration's program. Vacating it doesn't just pause it or block it. It would essentially unwind it. In response, though, we know Biden administration has already appealed the decision. We got confirmation of that last night from the White House. Then again, I should also make clear, like an appeal is gonna go to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which has a reputation for being the most conservative appeals, federal appeals court in the country. Um, from there, another appeal would land this case at the Supreme Court. Yeah. It's, just, it's hard to know what the timeline is here for clarity. Could be weeks. Keep in mind though, this is important. Lots of borrowers know this, don't need to be reminded. Student loan payments are also set to restart in a matter of weeks, come January.
13: I still got to pay mine. NPR's Corey Turner, thank you. You're welcome. This is NPR
0: News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, the world's second largest cryptocurrency exchange is in crisis and on the verge of bankruptcy. One of its rivals has declined to step in to help. And in our next hour, after two decades of centering its attention on the Middle East, the U.S. Army is pivoting to focus on China in response to that country's rising global influence. In your forecast, mostly cloudy and around 70 today, showers and gusty winds possible tonight night and it falls to the low 50s. Tomorrow starts with showers then skies clear for a mostly sunny day in the low 70s. Mostly sunny on Sunday too but much cooler it'll only be in the mid to upper 50s. Right now it's 57 degrees in Boston at 745.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments that he offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit
0: mbta.com careers. Now, in business news, the cost of diesel is soaring in Massachusetts. AAA says the current average is $5.94 a gallon. That's up 16 cents in the past week. Those prices are impacting the local trucking industry. Kevin Weeks is executive director of the state's Trucking Association. He says a single fill-up for some trucks can reach nearly $2,000.
4: We may see some of the smaller trucking companies be pushed to the brink and possibly over the edge and push right out of business because they aren't going to be able to carry these additional costs. Um, you, you know, you can't
19: finance
0: fuel. The average price of gas is now up to $3.87. That's up seven cents in the past week. Bedford-based iRobot is shedding light on a recent round of layoffs. The company says it terminated about 100 employees in August. The Boston Globe reports that's about 8 percent of its workforce. The layoffs followed news that Amazon plans to buy iRobot for more than $1.5 billion. A seasonal market is returning to Boston's Seaport District today. Organizers say more than 120 small businesses will offer goods at this year's Snowport. It's open 7 days a week and runs through the end of the year. It's 747.
1: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide, at EasyCater.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation.
13: It's morning edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. Crypto is in crisis. FTX is one of the world's biggest sites for trading cryptocurrency. The company was recently valued at more than $30 billion, but is now on the brink of bankruptcy. Wall Street's trying to figure out how bad the damage is going to be and if it's going to spread beyond crypto. Here's NPR's David Gura.
29: This is an astonishing reversal of fortune, according to Joseph Grundfest. He's a former SEC commissioner who's now a professor at Stanford.
7: FTX which as of two or three weeks ago was a highly respected and very important trading organization in crypto space, is now essentially out of business and bankrupt with
8: regulators and prosecutors circling it very aggressively.
29: And just like everybody, Grunfest is trying to figure out what happened.
8: We don't yet know the full story. What we know are the consequences, but we don't know the causes.
29: A few days ago, rumors spread that FTX was not fully solvent. Then after a crypto billionaire announced he was making a massive withdrawal, other customers panicked and tried to get their crypto out. Lee Reiners runs the Duke Financial Economics Center.
19: What's going on at FTX is something that we've seen time and again in financial markets, which is a classic run.
29: In a series of tweets on Thursday, FTX's founder and CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, said customers withdrew $5 billion on Sunday alone, and he apologized for making mistakes. Joseph Ayub is a digital asset research analyst at Citigroup.
28: It's up there with one of the most important crypto events in history.
29: FTX is a big name in crypto. It's Larry David commercial aired during the Super Bowl. And Bankman fried was this disheveled darling of Silicon Valley and an executive who spent a lot of time meeting with lawmakers. He's been a white knight riding in to rescue other crypto companies, bailing them out and sometimes buying them. I interviewed Bankman Freed back in June as a crypto hedge fund stood on the brink of collapse.
22: What I think that the biggest focus should be on and probably will be on is making sure that contagion doesn't spread.
29: Now he's causing concern. Crypto is a small world and companies are interconnected and cities. Joseph Ayub says there's worry about fallout.
28: The notion that there's a hole in the balance sheet of one of the largest exchanges in the space is obviously quite
29: damning. Bankman-Fried has spent the last week going to billionaires, hat in hand. Remember, in crypto, there is no lender of last resort, no government backstop. One of FTX's rivals, Binance, initially agreed to buy the company, but hours later, it backed out. FTX faces scrutiny from politicians and regulators in the U.S. and in the Bahamas, where the company's based, and customers are worried they could lose it all. Duke's Lee Reiners doesn't think this is a Lehman moment, as some have suggested. The collapse of Lehman Brothers back in 2008 was a big part of the financial crisis that led to the Great Recession.
19: You know, there is a silver lining to what's happened with FCX this week, which is it hasn't spilled into the traditional financial system and threatened financial stability. And we should view that as a policy success.
29: Reiners says the connections between crypto and the traditional finance system are minimal, and the overall value of crypto is tiny relative to the overall value of, say, stocks. Still, FTX's collapse has led to growing unease. Its U.S. platform posted a short, ominous warning on its website Thursday that it may halt trading in the coming days. And it's caused more volatility in the value of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin is down almost 75% from a year ago when it hit its all-time high.
19: This is an asset without any fundamentals and it trades entirely on sentiment. Sentiment is fickle and sentiment's negative right now.
29: And if FTX can't find its own white knight, it's likely that sentiment will get even worse. David Gurra, NPR News, New York.
13: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, we hear from the producer of a trove of newly discovered recordings that bring Boston's soul, R&B, and gospel music history to life. And in 20 minutes, President Biden is expected to tout U.S. progress on fighting climate change when he speaks at the U.N. Climate Summit in Egypt today. It's 7.52.
4: I'm Scott Tong. The number of homeless veterans has fallen since the pandemic began, but more than 30,000 veterans still remain without homes.
3: Being homeless is terrible. It's hard outside. It's almost the wintertime. It's cold. It's not safe. We'll cover the
4: crisis and what can be done next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Because of the Veterans Day holiday, there will be no mail delivery today. State offices and schools are closed. The HOV lane on northbound 93 is also closed, but the T is running on a normal weekday schedule. We'll have a cloudy Friday today with temperatures right around 70 and a chance of showers in the late afternoon. Tonight, more rain and thunderstorms possible with high wind gusts and temperatures in the low 60s. Tomorrow starts rainy, then clears for a sunny day in the low 70s. Much cooler on Sunday, sunny and low to mid 50s. It's 58 degrees in Boston at 753.
20: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And AE Events, design and production of corporate and non-profit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished.
0: This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shenoy. Rediscovered recordings from an unsung era of Boston's music history are being celebrated in a new compilation. WBWAR's Andrea Shea spoke to the record store owner who produced the trove of previously unearthed soul songs and legendary rhythm and blues.
23: Long before streaming service algorithms fed our appetites for new sounds, music lovers relied on passionate radio DJs and record shopkeepers
2: like Skippy White. There was a saying that if you came into the store and you wanted a record but you didn't know the name of it, all you had to do was just hum it.
23: The now 86-year-old ran at least six beloved Boston-area stores. He opened his first on Washington Street in 1961, and it became a mecca. But White lifted the needle on his six-decade brick-and-mortar career in 2020
2: and moved his massive inventory to a warehouse. But (laughs) even that wasn't big enough to hold everything. So when I finally uh, closed the last store and ended that chapter in my history, um, I had to bring a lot of records home. Billy Preston, remember him?
23: But there's part of that chapter few people know about. Musician Eli Paperboy Reed unearthed it in the mid-2000s while clearing out the basement at White's shuttered Central Square location.
28: It was full of water-damaged records, and that was sort of my clue that like, there was more to the story about soul music in Boston that I was aware of.
23: Reed knew White DJed and booked major soul artists like Otis Redding to play Boston in the 60s. What he didn't know was that White also recorded a
2: lot of local musicians he met at his first shop. And a lot of these groups who come to me, especially when I put out Sammy and the Dellards, they figured, oh, oh, Skippy White's the one to go to. You know, we want to record too. Everyone wants to record.
23: Now, Sammy and the Dellards' doo-wop tune, Sleepwalk, is one of 15 tracks on a new compilation called The Skippy White Story, Boston Soul, 1961-1967. to
2: I never thought that this would happen. Uh, never dreamed about it because... Uh, You know, I thought that if we were ever going to have a compilation of uh, some of the releases that I had on 45s, that I would have to put it out myself. With help from
23: other Skippy fans, Reed set out to capture this lost era. He hunted for forgotten 45s and found songs cut at sessions that never became records, including Treason by the Precisions. (laughs)
14: You
28: just don't expect to find really high-quality material that has sat in the can, or in this case, in a box in a basement for so many years.
23: Then a revival of re-releases from other vintage soul scenes around the country really lit Reed's fire.
28: I started noticing the sound of Miami and the sound of Seattle and Madison, Wisconsin, soul. And I was like, man, if they could put out records in these kind of far-flung places to me, I was like, there should be a compilation of soul
8: records and, and gospel records from Boston.
23: The 39-year-old's label, Yep Rock Records, got on board to share the story of Boston's soul, R&B, and gospel with a wider audience. Reed is especially excited about the Creighton family singer's tune, Master on High. And Joyce is 11 years old when she sang that song. 11 years old.
21: Every night
23: Joyce Creighton Weston, who's 68 now, also wrote the lyrics. I remember them saying, oh, we're going into the studio. Her father, Reverend Houston Creighton and Skippy White were friends. They co-promoted big gospel shows in Boston and included local bands on the bill, including the Creighton Singers. It's been many
20: years, you know. Both of my parents are gone, I miss them, but their legacy is still here. The Creighton Singers, that's what they
30: formed.
23: Still, Creighton Weston was surprised to learn about Master on High's Resurrection.
3: Even though it was one of my favorites, I didn't know that it would get that kind
2: of attention. None of them were hits. There isn't a hit on the whole compilation, but it's great music. Music.
23: White says some of the songs got radio play beyond Boston, but he never made much money from the musician's 45s. That's not what I was there for.
2: I was there to help them expose their talent, and that was it. Skippy White, his real name is Fred LeBlanc,
23: continues to sell vintage vinyl online, and he keeps his favorite genres alive on two weekend radio shows, The Gospel Train and The Time Tunnel.
2: Hey gang, get around Skippy White is back in town, like it come like it cold.
23: For 90.9 WBUR,
12: I'm Andrea Shea. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Global Arts Live, presenting a night of Indian music with Zakir Hussain and Naladri Kumar, November 20th at Sanders Theater. Tickets at globalartslive.org.
15: I'm Radio Boston host Tisiana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
0: Democrat Tina Kotek wins the race for Oregon's highest office, joining Maura Healey as the country's first openly lesbian governors. It's Friday, November 11th. This is W.B. Moore's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up, the congressional race in Colorado involving incumbent Lauren Boebert appears headed for a recount. Also this hour, the US Army is shifting its focus back to the Pacific to counter a rising China.
7: They want to be the most powerful nation on Earth. And I think they see the United States in their way of that goal.
0: And the challenges facing Twitter users who want to leave the social network because of moves by new owner Elon Musk
7: no
22: other social networking platform has the same sort of tools that make connection possible the way twitter does
0: in sports the bruins win cloudy and around 70 today it's 801 now the news
3: live from npr news in washington i'm nora rom president biden is speaking to the annual united nations climate conference today in egypt npr's ruth sherlock reports He's expected to talk about how America wants to be a leader in the transition to cleaner energy.
30: President Biden is likely to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, the recent massive piece of legislation with climate provisions that the administration says would help the U.S. hit its goal to cut carbon dioxide emissions in half by 2030. The president is expected to announce efforts to target methane emissions, a potent greenhouse gas, and new projects to help developing countries adapt to the worst effects of climate change, like flooding and drought. And he'll likely speak about how to get businesses in the global north more involved in financing projects that tackle climate change in developing economies, which some businesses see as risky. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Shama Sheikh. A federal judge
3: in Texas yesterday blocked President Biden's plan to forgive some student loans. NPR's Corey Turner says the judge declared the program unconstitutional.
28: Judge Mark T. Pittman, who was appointed by former President Trump, doesn't buy the administration's reading of the HEROES Act. Instead, he wrote that Biden's debt relief program is a complete usurpation of congressional authority by the executive branch. The judge even quoted James Madison in the Federalist Papers, uh, writing, the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive and judiciary in the same hands may justly be pronounced the." Very very definition of tyranny.
3: NPR's Cory Turner. The Justice Department says it will appeal. The program was already put on hold by another court, while a different lawsuit is being litigated. This is Veterans Day across the U.S. Vice President Harris is scheduled to attend the annual ceremony at Arlington National Cemetery. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports the National Native American Veterans Memorial will be opening at the Smithsonian in Washington.
18: After a two-year pandemic delay, the National Mall's newest memorial will welcome thousands of Native veterans and the general public. The site is adjacent to the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian, where Cynthia Chavez Lamar is the director.
1: I'm just thankful that the museum is able to do a little part to pay respects to that sacrifice they've made.
18: The National Native American Veterans Memorial incorporates stone, water, fire, and air, with a 12 foot high steel ring standing at its center. Chavez Lamar says despite a painful history with the U.S. government, American Indians have served in the military going back to the Revolutionary War. Quill Lawrence, NPR News.
3: Tropical Depression Nicole is now moving through Georgia with strong winds and heavy rain. It struck Florida as a hurricane yesterday. Officials say at least two people died. This is NPR News from Washington.
0: From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Months after it was first proposed, a $3.7 billion economic development bill is finally in effect. Governor Baker signed off on it yesterday. WBOR's Yasmeen Amor reports the bill includes money for the tea, affordable housing, and hospitals. More than $300 million
9: will go towards increasing the stock of affordable housing. By giving grants to developers and helping first generation home buyers. Another 50 million will be dedicated to developers from underrepresented backgrounds. Karim Kibodia from the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts says it's a step to helping developers of color compete.
31: Often enough, we we are the ones working in these buildings, working on these buildings, but we're not the one designing and developing. So that's that's one that I'm
0: very excited for.
9: The package also includes money for businesses that have financially struggled during the pandemic. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmeen Ammer.
0: Massachusetts State House employees are getting pay raises. House leadership announced a minimum of an 8 percent bump for all staff. They say the raises have been in the works since 2016. There will also be salary floors for full-time employees. This comes after Senate employees tried unsuccessfully to unionize. House officials, though, say the pay increases are unrelated. The head of the Massachusetts Health Connector is stepping down after eight years on the job. Luis Gutierrez will retire in January. The organization is yet to announce who will be its next leader. The Health Connector provides health and dental insurance for over a quarter million people in the Commonwealth. The city of Quincy marks Veterans Day today with its annual parade and ceremony ceremony. Christine Cugini is a veteran and organizer of the ceremony. She says what's most important to her is teaching others about the day's history.
3: Being able to share um, your stories, knowing that many, many men and women sacrificed their lives in just keeping that patriotism alive, it, it's our job as veterans. To continue that so it's never forgotten.
0: The parade kicks off at 1030 this morning at Russell Park. It's 806.
27: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballets as anticipated, with works by choreographer William Forsythe, including a world premiere, now
0: through November 13th. Tickets at BostonBallet.org. The Bruins topped the Calgary Flames 3-1 to last night at the Garden. The Bees will visit the Buffalo Sabres tomorrow. Tonight, the Celtics are at home to face the Denver Nuggets. Mostly cloudy today with a high near 70. There's a chance of showers this evening. Rain, storms, and strong winds move in overnight. Temperatures will stay in the 60s. Rain tomorrow morning with strong wind gusts, especially on the Cape and Islands. Sun by the afternoon. The high tomorrow will be in the lower 70s. Sunny on Sunday and in the 50s. It's 58 degrees in Boston at 8.07.
12: WBUR supporters include PBS with Taken Hostage. American Experience tells the story of the Iran hostage crisis through eyewitness accounts. A two-night event beginning Monday at 9, 8 central on PBS. It's Morning Edition from
13: NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. President Biden is speaking to the annual U.N. Climate Conference today in Egypt. Around 100 world leaders have traveled to the Red Sea resort town of Sharm el-Sheikh. At the start of the conference early this week, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres gave a very grim warning, saying, we are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. So will President Biden make real commitments to put on the brakes? NPR's Ruth Sherlock is in Sharm El Sheikh and joins us now. Hey, Ruth. Hey, good morning. So the US is the second biggest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world, second only to China. President Biden's
30: remarks are gonna be heavily scrutinized, I imagine. Yep, that's right. And what he's expected to talk about how America wants to lead the transition to cleaner energy in what he thinks of as a decisive decade for climate change you know he's likely to talk about the recent inflation reduction act in the u.s. that's that massive piece of climate legislation that if properly implemented would help the u.s. hit its goal to cut carbon dioxide emissions by half from a 2005 baseline and he's likely to make a raft of new announcements here about u.s. spending that's designed to help developing countries adapt to the consequences of climate change like floodings and drought and there's also more money to help uh... develop the renewable energy sector in these countries Mm. and then rachel there's the administration's big focus, which is how to get businesses in the global north more involved in financing projects that tackle climate change in developing countries, which some businesses see as risky. Yeah, but also it's those those countries in in the global south that are saying
13: we are experiencing the worst effects of climate change and you need to help us. this is something that the U.S. climate
30: envoy John Kerry has talked about this financing program, right? That's right. So he spoke about one specific proposal within that broader category, uh, which is related to carbon credits. Uh, Under this new US proposal, private companies in the US and abroad would buy these so-called carbon credits, which represent a set amount of emissions that were reduced or removed from the atmosphere, but not necessarily by those same companies. So it's kind of like an exchange. And under this idea, companies would pay developing countries to move away from coal as a way of making up their own emissions. The announcement is kind of controversial you know critics note that the carbon market is the carbon offset market is fairly poorly regulated and plagued by accounting problems critics say uh, some of the op- op- offset projects could amount to greenwashing uh, Kerry said the UN secretary-general though Antonio Guterres, uh, was supportive of a US-led car- carbon market plan so long as there are safeguards to it
13: um, but I understand it, President Biden's there of course but there are also other US
30: lawmakers there what are they doing yeah, well, it does seem that US politics has come to Shamul Sheikh here in Egypt. You know, we've got Democrats and Republicans here, and they're each holding press conferences to announce their own agendas and criticize each other. So, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, said long standing divisions between Republicans and Democrats on climate change has to end, but then she accused Republicans of believing that climate change is a hoax. There is a delegation of Republican lawmakers like John Curtis of Utah, uh, Debbie Lesko of Arizona, and others. And their point is that U.S. energy is efficient and leads the world, and they say they want to address global warming while keeping the U.S. economy strong. NPR's Ruth Sherlock reporting from Sharm El Sheikh, Egypt. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was President Barack Obama
13: who said at first, after years of fighting in the Middle East, the U.S. was going to, quote, pivot to Asia. That was aspirational more than anything else, as the war in Afghanistan and the fight against terrorism kept the U.S. mired in that region. It was like the Democrats' version of infrastructure week. Now the pivot to Asia actually seems to be happening. The U.S. military just finished training exercises in Hawaii with other countries from the Indo-Pacific. And yes, this is all about countering China. NPR's Emily Fang reports from those exercises in Hawaii.
32: The Hawaiian sun has just peeked out from behind the morning clouds when I get this quick safety rundown, right before I step into the Black Hawk helicopter. When you get in, there's going
11: to be two seat belts are the waist and two over the shoulders. You don't want to have something we call submarining where you slide out front of the sea.
32: And with that, I climb into the back of the Black Hawk with two Army sergeants.
11: Thank you. Where do I sit? It's Here? The
32: yeah. And we're off. This Black Hawk is part of a larger exercise in the skies over Hawaii's islands designed to mimic a real island-hopping campaign — say, off the coast of China or Taiwan. After more than an hour or so of skimming the bright blue Pacific Ocean, the pilot spots the Apache helicopters were supposed to cover as they attempt to refuel.
11: You have your Hellfire missiles right here, 30-millimeter main gun.
32: While these air exercises are going on, there's also infantry units camped out in the Hawaiian jungle and Marine and Navy detachments practicing in the waters around. It's all part of a 10-day training across Hawaii's eight islands, hosted out of the U.S. Army's newest training center, one designed specifically to get American fighting forces up to speed working in the Pacific. That's because the U.S. Army is undergoing a massive transition pivoting to threats in the Pacific. That includes North Korea and Russia and the Arctic. But the real focus, the country, quote, setting the pace, as the army calls it, is China.
7: They want to be the most powerful nation on Earth. And I think they see the United States in their way of that goal.
32: This is Major General Joe Ryan, the commanding general of the 25th Infantry Division on Hawaii, the main unit participating in the Hawaii exercises. He points to Chinese exercises near Taiwan in August as a sign of Beijing's growing strength.
7: I think most people who were just looking at pure facts would argue that what they did in response to Speaker Pelosi's visit in Taiwan was a rehearsal, was a demonstration of capability, and there's no question about that.
32: Which is why an entire generation of officers who cut their teeth in counterinsurgency in Afghanistan and Iraq have to get up to speed in the (laughs) Indo-Pacific.
11: You want me to hold it?
32: Helping lead the charge in the army is this guy, General Charles Flynn. He's the commanding general of the U.S. Army Pacific.
11: You know, you look at areas like Oceania and what's going, some of the activities that are going on in South Asia, and then we've already talked about their actions in the East China Sea, South China Sea, Taiwan Strait, and those are concerning.
32: Beijing is paying close attention. And they've also set ambitious goals to modernize their own military for what they say is self-defense. But that has made other countries, not just the U.S., nervous. That's why Thailand, the Philippines, and Indonesia sent infantry units of their own to train with American soldiers in Hawaii. Nine other countries, like Australia and Japan, are observing. Many of them are interested in holding their own such exercises and building their own training centers. General Flynn says these partnerships are key.
11: I believe that that is our greatest counterweight to the incremental and insidious behavior of the PRC.
32: Sergeant Pongsang Peposa came with the Royal Thai Army to Hawaii to observe the training.
22: The U.S. Army is very professional and it's very helpful for us to be prepared and pick up what we have left behind or we have been
32: behind from And this joint training also makes it easier to sync up and join forces with the U.S. Army in short order if ever needed. Back out in the jungle of Oahu, I find Indonesian and American soldiers setting up posts in a couple of concrete buildings they've captured overnight. It's not always smooth working together because not everyone speaks English and they've got to fall back on sign language every so often. Despite such challenges, Major General Ryan says this preparation is worth the effort.
7: The old adage of the more you sweat in peace, the less you bleed in war, that's really what we hope to achieve. But again, the goal, by doing it, is to deter China from thinking that they will be successful.
32: And thereby preventing a conflict in the first place. Emily Fang, NPR News, Oahu, Hawaii.
13: One of Donald Trump's biggest allies in Congress is in danger of losing her seat in Colorado. Lauren Boebert was favored to win her majority Republican district, but it is very close. Colorado Public Radio's Dan Boyce reports.
8: Boebert easily won her first term in 2020 and quickly established a national reputation as a loud denier of President Biden's victory. But two years later,
15: I don't think I've ever seen any race this close.
8: Brandy Bantz is director of elections for Mesa County, one of the biggest in this largely rural district. She's been working elections for 18 years. The last time she had checked, out of more than 300,000 ballots counted, Boebert and her Democratic opponent Adam Frisch were within about 60 votes of each other. The margin has grown and shrunk as batches of votes have come in. Colorado Mesa University student Harrison Shapiro is among those watching it closely.
16: I keep checking the the results and
32: yeah,
8: it's very tense. Boebert's opponent Frisch is a former city councilman in Aspen, a rich liberal enclave in the district where natural gas development and ranching are leading industries. Longtime district residents like John Crouch, who's been active in politics, are surprised Frisch has done so well.
11: Yes, I didn't expect that. I thought Bobert would win hands down.
8: The race is so tight that a recount looks likely. State law says one is triggered in races closer than half a percentage point. A final vote tally is still pending, says Mesa County's Brandy Bance. But
15: we have about 800 people that could potentially cure. That could make a huge impact on this race.
8: Cure meaning the state double checks with voters who mailed in ballot envelopes where their signatures don't match what's on file. The 800 bands refers to are in Mesa County alone.
9: So all of these here
15: are sitting as rejected for signature discrepancies.
8: There are 26 more counties in this district, most of them smaller than Mesa. The state has until November 16th to try to contact voters with signature discrepancies Political parties or any member of the public are allowed to try to track down the voters with these questionable ballots. Their names are on a public list. Again, ballots are still coming in and there's a chance that Bobert or Frisch will get enough votes and cured ballot numbers won't make a difference. Frisch has made a fundraising appeal to help his campaign cure ballots. Bobert has been uncharacteristically quiet since election night. For NPR News, I'm Dan Boyce in Grand Junction, Colorado.
0: What are we listening to? Oh, yeah, it's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupesh Hanoi. Twitter is rapidly changing under new owner Elon Musk, and some uni- users turned off by those changes are finding that leaving the social network is more difficult than expected. That's coming up, as well as in this week's Storycore, a father talks to his daughter about putting aside his dreams of becoming a musician to join the military. It's 819. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars.
27: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, a performance-driven investment manager navigating challenging financial markets around the globe since 1926. Learn more at LoomisSales.com. The law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative. This is Nutter. Online at nutter.com. And the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. Are cultural and economic forces changing boyhood, manhood, and even fatherhood?
22: Richard Reeves says. Many men and many boys are really struggling in school, in the workplace, in the family. And unless we pay serious attention to the problems of boys and men, they're just gonna fester.
21: That's why he says true gender equality means helping men too. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Mostly cloudy today with a high near 71. Not too bad of a forecast to enjoy a state park. Parking is free at all of them today for Veterans Day. There's a chance of showers in the late afternoon. Tonight the showers may continue and we may see thunderstorms. There may also be some strong wind gusts. Temperatures will fall to a low of 63. Tomorrow, a rainy Saturday morning. Then clouds gradually clear for a mostly sunny day with a high near 72. Sunday, rain in the early morning. Then, mostly sunny but much cooler with a high near 55. Right now it's 59 degrees in Boston at 821.
1: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages 3 and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. And from Fisher Investments, As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Netflix, presenting Is That Black Enough For You? From writer and director Elvis Mitchell comes a love letter to black cinema of the 70s, celebrating the films and talent that changed the game, now streaming on Netflix and from the listeners who support this NPR station.
13: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. Twitter's new owner Elon Musk is making some big changes to the platform. And these changes are so controversial, some of the company's top executives have quit. Some users are quitting, too, looking for other places to develop online community and to get information. Mastodon Social has popped up as an alternative. But as NPR's Raquel Maria Dillon reports, Breaking up with Twitter is hard
15: to do. John Wilker, a science fiction novelist in Denver, has been using Twitter since the early days, 2007.
19: I figure anyone pre 2010 were in that trendsetter category.
15: He credits Twitter with helping him launch his writing career, but other times it left him feeling disillusioned, like after the 2016 elections and then again in 2020.
19: And it would always come down to just like, okay, this feels like the ratio now is turning more towards. Doom posting, mean spirited hot takes on things. That was usually when I'd start to look.
15: He's explored alternative social platforms like Discord and Mastodon and didn't find them gratifying.
19: But they're all very special. Like I joined one the other day that was all about, you know, science fiction, fantasy writing. And I'm like, this is great. These are definitely my people but then no one else is there.
22: No other social networking platform has the same sort of tools that make connection possible the way Twitter does.
15: That's Meredith Clark, a professor of communication at Northeastern University. She's writing a book about Black Twitter. Even before Musk took over, she says Twitter didn't do a good job of protecting Black and other marginalized users. She worries it'll get even worse for them under Musk.
22: The question is whether they want to deal with kind of harassment that has definitely spiked in the last few days and weeks, whether they want to be there when, say, the chief chaos agent in charge comes back to the platform if he's allowed back on the platform.
15: She means former President Trump. Twitter's defectors are gravitating to sites like Mastodon. Here's the founder, Eugene Rochko.
1: Mastodon is a decentralized social media platform.
15: If that sounds really technical to you, it is. Mastodon has been popular with programmers and engineers. It's a little clunky to sign up, but it's growing. The platform now has about a million users. That's more than double compared to before Musk took over Twitter. Rochko feels vindicated that his idea is going mainstream.
19: What I always wanted to get over as a hurdle is that the idea that, no, there's not enough people in there, so I can't really use it, or it's
15: for nerds. Joan Donovan, a Harvard Kennedy School professor and author of the new book, Meme Wars, says this moment is an opportunity to rethink what we want social networks to be.
14: What does it mean to build an intentional social network around timely, accurate local knowledge? and start from that premise rather than from the premise of, well, we're just gonna be the tubes that push information around the web and no one's gonna be responsible for the quality.
15: It's a chance for a do-over, Donovan says. Keep the parts we like, easy online community building and fun memes, for example. Maybe lose the parts we hate, like the disinformation, compulsion, and the breathless chase for likes and eyeballs. But John Wilker says, he's finding it hard to break up with Twitter.
19: (laughs) I did think about it the other day, but no, I have no plans to go anywhere, no plans to wholesale walk away.
15: However, he thinks taking a break from his intense relationship with Twitter might be healthy while he evaluates other options. Raquel Maria Dillon, NBR News, San Francisco time now for StoryCorps. Today, a dream
13: deferred but not forgotten. Born into a musical family, Des Rubana was pulled on stage as a drummer for the first time when he was just 12. He came to StoryCorps 80 years later with his daughter to remember.
11: My Uncle Jimmy pulled up in his car and he said, hey kid, I need a drummer tonight. He took two teaspoons and showed me how different beats were played. I thought, this guy's crazy. However, I got the book. I said to myself, this is pretty cool.
13: Des knew he'd found his calling. What he didn't know was that because his opera singer mom gave birth to him in Montreal, he wasn't a U.S. citizen.
11: Well, one night, I'm sitting with Grandma and Grandpa having dinner, and there's a knock on the door. Bursting into the apartment were two uniformed immigration guys with pistols on their hips, and they clicked a pair of handcuffs on me and said, you're getting deported. I called Grandpa's lawyer, and I said, what do I do? He says, join the service tomorrow, and they can't touch you. So the next day, I went and joined the Air Force.
15: Had you ever thought about joining the military before? Never.
11: Good Lord, no.
15: What might have been different about your life?
11: I probably would have stayed in the music business. When you get musicians cooking on a bandstand, the hair goes up on the back of your neck. And it's a feeling I can't describe in words, but it's almost like the love of a woman.
15: Our house was always the house where every kid in the neighborhood was. My favorite thing was when it was time for everybody to go home and you would play a march, the Get Out of My House song. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like the musical talent skipped me. You made me get up on stage and sing My Blue Heaven with you. Maybe I was 12 and I hated every second of it. Did
11: you really? You never told me that.
15: Well, because I would do anything for you. But I don't know why anybody wants to be on stage.
11: It gets in your blood. The urge is still there. But who wants to hire a 92-year-old guy? you be sitting up behind the set of drums waiting for him to drop dead. No, no. I did one thing right in my life. I raised you. You've been a joy as a daughter. Everybody should be as lucky as I am.
13: 92-year-old Des Rubano. He spent most of his career in consulting. He was interviewed by his daughter, Gina Livingston, in Decatur, Georgia. This holiday season, NPR and StoryCorps invite you to interview a loved one as part of the Great Thanksgiving Listen. More information at thegreatlisten.org.
1: Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, featuring the 2022 Subaru Forester Wilderness, with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com Wilderness. And from Morgan Stanley, a proud sponsor of StoryCorps. Morgan Stanley is committed to giving back and to fostering meaningful dialogue among people and communities. More at MorganStanley.com.
3: This is
0: NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shenoy, coming up on Morning Edition, the latest on a cholera outbreak that's surging across the Caribbean, Middle East, Africa, and South Asia. It's 8:29. Remember, you can take WBUR with you wherever you go this weekend. All you need is your phone and the WBUR mobile app.
33: We're
27: funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. You can give the gift of a holiday meal for just $30. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR.
10: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A federal judge in Texas says President Biden's student loan debt forgiveness program is unconstitutional. As NPR's Cory Turner reports, the judge says it lacks Congressional authority and is unlawful. Judge Mark
28: Pittman, who was appointed by President Trump, wrote that President Biden's debt relief program is a complete usurpation of Congressional authority. The Biden administration had argued that Congress gave the president the authority to erase student debts in a law known as the HEROES Act. The judge, though, disagreed and essentially ordered that the program be dissolved. The administration has already appealed to the Fifth Circuit, which has a reputation for being the most conservative federal appeals court in the country. The plaintiffs in the suit are two borrowers, one who is frustrated because her loans don't qualify for relief, and one who does qualify but believes he should be eligible for more relief. Cory Turner, NPR News.
10: Nicole threatens to produce flash flooding and tornadoes today over a wide area of the southeastern U.S. Nicole is now a tropical depression as it moves northward out of Georgia. Heavy rains and gusty winds are occurring in more than a half dozen states. The National Weather Service has posted tornado watches in the Carolinas and much of Virginia this morning. Sections of the Blue Ridge Mountains could receive up to six inches of rain by tonight. This is NPR News.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Hospitals across the area are over capacity as they deal with a spike in a respiratory virus. RSV is a common illness that affects children and the elderly. It usually comes later in the season, but officials with Mass General Brigham say cases are overwhelming their facilities to the point where there are often no pediatric ICU beds available. Dr. Paul Biddinger says the hospitals are in uncharted territory.
10: We do expect uh, that there will be some waning of RSV, hopefully in the coming weeks, maybe month. But we are also concerned because, of course, influenza is rapidly rising to the south of us and probably will be increasing here in Massachusetts and New England pretty soon.
0: The Department of Public Health says flu severity is at a low level statewide, although it is higher in the Worcester area. Harvard's Peabody Museum is returning hair samples collected from Native American children at government-run boarding schools to their tribes. The samples were taken from about 700 students back in the 1930s. The museum apologized for having the hair in its collection. It also acknowledged that they were collected to support scientific racism. The museum is using a website with a list of affected tribes to help return the samples. The MBTA says a technology problem is causing a severe impact this morning on the ride. That's the T's paratransit service. The transit agency is telling anyone who has a trip scheduled for today to try and make alternate plans. A newly rediscovered compilation of vintage music is resurrecting a largely forgotten era in Boston's cultural history. WBUR's Andrea Shea fills us in.
23: More than half a century ago, legendary Boston DJ and record store owner Skippy White recorded 45s of local doo-wop, blues, and gospel musicians. Now 15 rediscovered songs are being remembered on a new release called The Skippy White Story, Boston Soul, 1961-1967. to
2: I never thought that this would happen. I never dreamed about it. Skippy White is 86 and lives in Natick. I thought that if we're ever going to have a compilation of some of the releases that I had on 45s that I would have to put it out myself. Fans of White worked for years to curate this collection just
23: out on Yep Rock Records. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. It's
0: 834.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning.
0: The Bruins beat the Calgary Flames 3-1 to last night at the Garden. Boston has won nine of its last ten games. The Bees will visit the Buffalo Sabres tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics will take on the Denver Nuggets. In your forecast, it'll be overcast today with temperatures around 70. There's a chance of rain and thunderstorm that may bring high winds this evening, it'll fall to the low 60s. The high winds continue tomorrow morning, especially on the Cape and Islands. There's also a chance of rain, but skies should clear by the afternoon and it'll be mostly sunny in the low 70s. Temperatures drop sharply on Sunday. It'll be sunny and in the 50s. It's 60 degrees in Boston at 835.
1: Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR.
13: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. We've got some grim news on the global health front to report this morning. Cholera is surging around the world. 29 countries are reporting outbreaks. Poverty, conflict, and climate change are fueling the spread. NPR's global health reporter Ari Daniel is here. Hi, Ari.
22: Hi there, Rachel.
13: First off, just remind us how people contract cholera.
22: Certainly. People get cholera from contaminated water, which can then cause extreme diarrhea and dehydration. And if it's not treated, it can kill someone in a matter of hours. Well, how do you treat it? There's a very effective oral vaccine, actually, but there's not enough of it to meet current demand. In fact, last month, the international group managing emergency vaccine supplies decided to reduce the standard two-dose regimen to a single dose to stretch the supply. I spoke with Tarek Yashadovich, He's with the WHO.
8: This is really
10: an emergency measure, and it's a temporary measure. We hope that cholera outbreaks will be brought
13: down not only by vaccines, but also by other measures that we have at our disposal. What does he mean by other measures?
22: Well, cholera spreads in water where there's poor sanitation. So for many, it's a matter of securing clean water. Hmm.
13: And you're actually talking to me from, from Lebanon, right? You went there yeah. to get a first-hand look at the cholera outbreak that they're going through, which is the first in decades.
22: Yes, the first case was discovered a month ago and already there are more than a couple thousand cases here and it's spread across the entire country. I went to the Bakah Valley in the east and visited a health center in the village of Duris. Darin Al-Ahmar runs the place. Now this village doesn't have any cholera yet, but we stood out in front of the health center and Al-Ahmar looked in the direction of a town where there is a cholera outbreak. It may soon show up here too, she told me.
33: The big problem is the groundwater water becomes populate.
22: Oh, uh, become populated with the bacteria, like gets contaminated. The groundwater fills the wells that villages in this area depend on for showering, irrigating farms, brushing teeth, washing vegetables. And here's the issue. The wastewater flowing out of the toilets and sinks from homes here and from the numerous informal settlements for refugees, it's not being treated before returning to the lakes and rivers.
33: Our water become dirty. So
22: the problem is that the water is all connected. From
33: there to here.
22: So this whole area is in danger.
33: Yes, of course.
22: Over the last few years, Lebanon's been hit with crisis upon crisis, a financial collapse, political instability, COVID, a fragile healthcare system, and widespread power shortages, which means there's not enough energy to fuel the water filtration plants, allowing the bacteria to spread.
33: I'm very, very upset. Why Lebanon comes to these days? Why Lebanon uh, don't uh, have uh, electricity? Why Lebanon don't have water?
22: Al-Ahmar walks me inside the health center. It's tidy and bright. 30 people are waiting, a bunch of kids and families. 34-year-old Mona Horley tells me she's not afraid
25: because I didn't see anyone have uh, cholera.
22: But Shahina Nahorli, her 48-year-old aunt, says it's only a matter of time.
25: People, they see that the water is polluted, they see the sewage uh, uh, passing by, so yes, we are afraid that the cholera will be more in this
3: area.
22: It's a well-founded concern. Shazette Najjar directs the Lebanese branch of the Mariothe Foundation. It's a global health NGO headquartered in France.
25: Today, mainly in the rural areas, I'm not sure that we have the means uh, to resolve these structural problems linked
22: to the water, to the wash. Which is why the health center's approach focuses on education. Since early October, Dereen al has been making daily cholera announcements to the patients. Today, she's addressing half a dozen women and a few children in the waiting area.
33: Like corona, we have now cholera, so you should be aware. Uh, so the steps to avoid cholera yourselves is tick, 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 tick.
22: Like washing your hands thoroughly and adding chlorine to your water to kill the cholera
33: bacteria. And anyone of you feeling these symptoms, don't wait to go to the doctor.
22: This clinic and others like it are expecting vaccine deliveries to arrive soon. And it's about to start stocking oral rehydration solution. But in the meantime, Al-Ahmar explains how to make it at home, which can literally save someone's life.
33: Al-Ahmar's
22: small audience listens closely. Don't worry, she tells them. The clinic will care for you if you get sick.
13: Hmm. So Ari, what's the Lebanese government doing to respond to the cholera outbreak?
22: The Ministry of Public Health told me they've boosted water surveillance and they're working to get electricity to water treatment stations. The WHO has helped Lebanon secure 600,000 vaccine doses. The first wave of an immunization program starts tomorrow.
13: Oh, but it reminds me of hurricane season, right? Where communities know a disaster's coming and they just have to wait.
22: Except there's one big difference, Rachel. The conditions that create cholera are often caused by us. One doctor told me that it's 2022 and people should have clean water. It should be a source of life.
13: NPR's Ari Daniel reporting from Lebanon. Thank you so much.
22: Thank you.
12: So
13: how are you feeling today? Yeah. It's been a week, right? Some of us have good coping mechanisms in place for stress, exercise, time with family, time away from family. But the stress and anxiety that accumulates over a few days or weeks can be utterly debilitating for some people. Seven million Americans suffer from generalized anxiety disorder. That's according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. But less than half seek treatment. Dr. Elizabeth Hoagie is director of Georgetown University's Anxiety Disorders Research Program. Here's how she describes the condition.
15: A disorder characterized by frequent and intense worry um, that makes it hard for people to concentrate, hurts their sleep, makes them irritable. And those symptoms are so bad that it interferes with their ability to get things done.
13: Many suffering from anxiety are prescribed antidepressant medications, like Lexapro. Dr. Hoagie did this study to try and find out if patients could get the same relief through meditation. She and her team compared patients taking Lexapro to those who underwent an eight week meditation program. It was called mindfulness based stress
15: reduction. It's weekly classes for two and a half hours. Plus, we ask participants to do 45 minutes of um, meditation homework each day, if they can, to really get the skills.
13: Their research was published this week in the Journal of the American Medical Association and the conclusion. The
15: effective treatments were pretty much the same. Doctors can feel comfortable recommending mindfulness meditation training to their patients in the same way that they might recommend psychotherapy or medication or both. Dr. Hoagie's goal is to get insurance
13: companies to cover mindfulness meditation. This is my free advice. Being still, breathing deeply is always a good idea. This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, the highly anticipated sequel to Black Panther is in wide release this weekend. The movie breaks the mold by directly addressing the death of its main character. In your forecast, mostly cloudy and around 70 today. Showers and gusty winds possible tonight, and it falls to the low 60s. Tomorrow starts with showers, then skies clear for a mostly sunny day in the low 70s. Mostly sunny on Sunday, too, but much cooler. It'll only be in the mid to upper 50s. Right now, it's 60 degrees, 61 degrees in Boston at 844.
20: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, presenting Medal of Honor. Showcasing artistic interpretations of gold from the Renaissance and today. GardnerMuseum.org.
0: Now, in business news, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston says it's too early to know if people will ever fully return to the office. While visiting Providence yesterday, Susan M. Collins pointed to uncertainty in the commercial real estate market. She told the Boston Globe vacancy rates in office buildings will not come with a one-size-fits-all solution. The state's Gaming Commission is praising Encore Boston Harbor for meeting its job creation goals. The U.S. Donahue Institute conducted a survey of recent hires at the casino. The data show Encore employs a diverse workforce, but it did fall short of its goal for hiring women. Women make up about 45 percent of employees compared to the initial goal of 50 percent. It's 8.45.
20: Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth.
13: For a new village, well, there's one for sale in northwestern Spain. It's around 260000 000-
31: Marvel's Black Panther has returned to the screen, minus the star who originally brought him to life. Actor Chadwick Boseman died of colon cancer in 2020. But the film Black Panther Wakanda Forever will attempt to replicate the record-breaking success by telling a new story and honoring Boseman's legacy at the same time. Glenn Weldon from NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast is here to tell us all about it. Glenn, welcome. Morning, eh? You know, Glenn, when I saw the original Black Panther movie, I was a little concerned when i walked away from it i was already thinking about the sequel and how often sequels disappoint
16: from the original so it has big shoes to fill oh it really does look this film just hit people in a different way and in this movie the sequel the absence of chadwick boseman is palpable you know his death is dealt with head-on uh it drives the plot actually because the world now sees wakanda as defenseless and starts making moves to exploit its resources. It does shift the focus away from T'Challa, played by Bozeman, to his sister Shuri, played by Letitia Wright. And actually, the film does that a lot. It divides the action between a lot of the women in Black Panther's life, uh, like his mother, Queen Ramonda, played by Angela Bassett, who gets a lot more to do in this movie, which is great, and she does it fiercely. She is servant.
12: We know what you whisper.
16: oh she's so good
31: yeah and you know what I think there was a lot of emotion when Chadwick Boseman died about recasting the character T'Challa I always knew that that was not going to happen because there's always going to be a Black Panther hero I mean T'Challa took the mantle from T'Chaka his father so they traded one hero Mm -hmm. for several but heroes are really only as good as their villains so who's
16: the bad guy in this one All right, that's Prince Namor, played by Tenoch Huerta. He is the ruler of this undersea realm that goes to war with Wakanda for reasons it's best not to think too hard about. They don't quite hang together. This
18: place is amazing. The air is pristine.
20: My mother told stories about a place like this, a protected land with people that never have to leave, that never have to change who they were.
16: Now, you know the comics, right? So you know yeah. uh, Namor has a very distinctive look. He's got these green speedos and these little wing ankles to let him fly. Uh, they look great on the page, but in live action, you have to work a little harder to bring real gravitas when you're standing there, hovering, trying to be imposing. Meanwhile, your little feety wings are going It's tough to pull off, but he does.
31: I've seen the trailers of him flying around. I kind of dig it, so that's just me. So, Glenn, do you think this
16: new film captures that same magic without Chadwick Boseman? I mean, that's the real question, right? Uh, Wakanda Forever is bookended by scenes in which the characters get to grieve and celebrate both uh, T'Challa and Boseman. Those scenes are there for a reason. They're to let the characters do that, but they're also to let the audience do it as well. And hey, I do think there is something special about the whole idea of Wakanda as a place. Here's this advanced afro-futurist utopia that's been hidden from the world, so it offers a vision of black experience, of black excellence that is untouched by colonialism, untouched by slavery. There is a very simple power in that idea. And if you think about it, all superhero stuff asks what if? That's its appeal. That's what it does. Wish fulfillment. What if I could fly like Superman? Here though, the what if just comes from a deeper place. It comes from pain. And I think the vision of Wakanda works on people a lot more profoundly than a lot of other superhero stuff does. Uh, Wakanda Forever knows that and really taps into it. That's Glenn Weldon of NPR's pop culture happy hour. Glenn, thanks.
31: My pleasure. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Liederman. Ami e. Martinez.
0: And I'm Rachel Martin. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report examines how voters responded to economic messages from candidates in this week's midterm elections. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Celeste Headley is here to talk about what they're going to be talking about today. Happy Friday, Celeste.
3: Happy Friday to you. Um, We will be talking about the climate just as uh, President Biden will be at a U.N. summit when he will be talking about uh, sort of what's been going on on in the climate, but also how we might limit climate change going forward. Hard to imagine he won't also make some mention of a victory lap because of the midterms. Mm -hmm. We will check in on the hot mess that is Twitter Um, (laughs) and see what's going on with that. And also we'll talk about how Gen Z may have just been the deciding votes in the uh, midterms this week. Interesting.
0: Okay. Thanks, Celeste. Thank you. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.50.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's As Anticipated, with works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere now through November 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com.
5: As President Biden and other world leaders met at the climate summit in Egypt, we take a look at the impact of climate change in Western Africa.
28: Nowadays, God has pushed the sea up to our houses. Climate change destroyed many
12: houses.
5: That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News.
12: Today from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR
1: News Station.
0: We'll have a cloudy Friday today with temperatures right around 70 and a chance of showers in the late afternoon. Tonight, more rain and thunderstorms possible with high wind gusts and temperatures in the low 60s. Tomorrow starts rainy, then clears for a sunny day in the low 70s. Much cooler on Sunday, sunny and low to mid 50s. Right now, it's 61 degrees in Boston at 851.
17: The stock
12: market's upward surge is set to extend into today. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance offers personalized rates and customizable coverages for your business vehicles. More at progressivecommercial.com.
17: I'm David Brancaccio. Stocks roared skyward yesterday, and major indexes in Asia closed significantly higher, especially in Hong Kong where the index rose nearly 8% after China announced some loosening of COVID restrictions. Here in the U.S., Wall Street is poised for more moderate gains after that hint of good news about inflation. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more.
29: China's government today shortened quarantine times from seven to five days and relaxed some travel rules, raising the prospect that the Chinese economy may do better than previously thought as COVID curbs become less disruptive. On top of that, yesterday's Consumer Price Index report in the U.S. showed meaningful declines in both annual and monthly inflation and raised the prospect that the Fed may slow interest rate hikes fairly soon. This was enough to send investors piling back into stocks, including riskier bets such as big tech stocks. Apple, Microsoft, and Alphabet yesterday soared between 7.5% to 9%. But really every US sector saw gains, retailers, banks, utilities, even real estate,
17: where stocks rose nearly 8%. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. Let's play that numbers music. To review yesterday, the Nasdaq went up 7.4%. The Dow closed up. 1,201 points yesterday, 3.7%. The S&P went up 5.5% to its highest level since early September. And the bond market surged as well with the 10-year interest rate down at 3.82%. The bond market is closed for Veterans Day today. So far today, Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up in the 4 to 5 tenths of a percent range. You may have cut our reporting last month on money, politics, and whether campaign donors can be secret Santas who spend big, but voters never know it's them. It took four tries over the years to get a disclosure law before Arizona voters, but there it was this week. We can now tell you that it passed easily. 73% are saying yes and counting. Former Arizona, Ari- former Arizona Attorney General Terry Goddard led this effort. He says it's a moment of unity in a polarized state. We're about as
11: divided as you can be, just right down the line, 50-50. But when three quarters of the voters, 75 percent, say that they want transparency in election financing, that's not a partisan statement. That's very comprehensive in terms of political thought.
17: Other states that passed initiatives to curb so-called dark money have faced legal challenges.
11: I'm anticipating that the folks who've made their bread and butter off of raising dark money and spending it are not going to go down quietly. I feel that we've got the overwhelming high ground in terms of constitutional issues. The Supreme Court has constantly said that political speech, in other words, who is funding a political campaign, who is making contributions? You can't hide those names.
17: A federal judge this summer rejected a challenge to a similar disclosure law in Alaska that had been based on free speech, the challenge was. About half U.S. states allow people to use
12: petitions to get on the ballot. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business is dedicated to simplifying the process of buying supplies. And by Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss
17: economic policy in a new Congress. Yesterday, we talked to an expert at the conservative American Enterprise Institute. Today, a voice aligned with Democrats. Felicia Wong is CEO of Roosevelt Forward, a sister organization to the Roosevelt Institute in New York. Thanks for doing this. Hi, David. One way or another, it appears power will be divided in Washington. Does nothing get done in terms of economic policy for the next two years?
34: A lot is going to get done in economic policy over the next few years, in part because there's so much to do to implement all of the legislation that's already been passed. There remains a lot of runway to both make sure that money gets out to communities and serves real people, and frankly, David, a lot of work to make sure that politicians, elected officials, know how to talk about that and explain that to voters.
17: I was frankly a little surprised to see some Republicans speaking out loud prior to Election Day, talking about cuts to Social Security or implying them. I thought, look, I'm no political expert, but seems risky.
34: Yeah, it's I think kind of out of touch politics, which is why you did not see the kind of red tsunami that many in the media had predicted, because I think a lot of what the Republicans actually had to offer on inflation, on people's pocketbook issues. The Republicans actually didn't have a lot to say that was affirmative. And I think the American people noticed.
17: But that said, I saw several polls before the election talking about a 13 point margin of voters believing the GOP would do a better job dealing with inflation. CBS, UGov had something not quite that margin, but something like nine percent. I mean, the Democrats aren't making their case either.
34: Well, that's very true. And there is a lot that Democrats need to do. But when you look at the exit polls, what you'll see is that the two top issues for voters were abortion and inflation. Ultimately, what I think that shows is that many voters who said that inflation and the economy and job creation Were their top issues still ended up voting for Democrats. And I do think that is in part because Democrats actually have a plan and actions on the economy. And I further think that that is because the Democrats actually had a track record to run on. In part, that was because the Democrats really demonstrated especially with the American Rescue Plan of 2020, that they knew how to create jobs and how to keep Americans at least in the game with respect to their own household economics, even in the face of that COVID recession.
17: Felicia Wong, today representing Roosevelt Forward, a sister organization of the Roosevelt Institute, is also co-host of the new podcast, How to Save a Country. Felicia, thank you.
34: Always a pleasure, David.
17: And a federal judge in Texas has struck down the Biden Student Loan Forgiveness Program. The U.S. Justice Department plans an appeal. Many lenders don't like this forgiveness, and some conservative politicians regard it as unfair to those who paid everything back. I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. It'll be overcast with low 70s today. Showers and gusty winds possible tonight. Temperatures fall to the low 60s. Tomorrow, showers possible in the early morning. Then clouds clear away and we'll have sun and low 70s. Sunday, sunny and low to mid 50s. Right now, it's 61 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock. The BBC is next.
12: WBR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com.
21: Are cultural and economic forces changing boyhood, manhood, and even fatherhood?
22: Richard Reeves says. Many men and many boys are really struggling in school, in the workplace, in the family. And unless we pay serious attention to the problems of boys and men, they're just gonna fester.
21: That's why he says true gender equality means helping men too. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
17: I'm Morning
31: Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.